Uh, I think a, a number of weeks ago, many of us were here for John McCullough's uh, funeral, and John asked me just before he died to uh, preach on the passage Colossians 1, which I was very pleased to do. And I thought as I was preparing that, that this would be a very, very powerful message to bring around Christmas time as we think about uh, the real Jesus. So tonight we're going to look at those verses and then a few beyond that as we read from Colossians uh, chapter 1. So let's read Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. That has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the, the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wis spiritual wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now 
he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And we end at verse 23 there. <coughs> we thank God again for this. Right. Well, if you have a Bible, please have it opened at Colossians 1. Jeff quoted me quoting somebody else uh, this morning in a kind of complicated way. It was John MacArthur who I was quoting, and, and then he, he quoted that quote. John MacArthur said this, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. Or as we put it, Jeff and myself put it, what we believe about Jesus is either killing us or bringing us life. It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. We have multitudes of people who think because they believe in a Jesus of their own imagination or the Jesus of some kind of weird religion, the Jesus of traditionalism, that somehow they're okay and it's damning them. It's killing them. So I say again, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. Do you believe in the real Jesus? That's the key thing. Do you believe in the real Jesus? Have you got life? Or actually, do you have death? Paul is writing to a church here that he'd never visited. He didn't even know. But he knew enough about the church to write this letter. And he knew that this young church was under attack from false teaching. They were called Gnostics. And the Gnostics basically said this to these young believers, your belief in Jesus is okay for beginners. Your acceptance of the gospel is okay for now. But if you simply add to what you have received our secret teaching, our extra rituals, our special experiences, if you just add a little bit of this and that, then you will be like us and you will be superior. Paul says, no, don't go there. Don't do that. How can you add on to the real Jesus? How, how can you get better than the gospel of Jesus? And this whole letter basically is about understanding who the real Jesus is so that we'll not be tempted to add anything on to him. So Paul piles up the descriptions of who Jesus is to educate this church, to educate us, and to encourage them, and to encourage us to be happy in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Notice there verse 13. If I, I just listed them all here. The, the, all these reasons why we should love and trust in and accept who Jesus really is. Verse 13, he's the son of the Father's love. 
For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, the very manifestation of the love of God for the world. Do you, do you want to know what or who love is? Then <laughs> look at Jesus. Redeemer, he's the Redeemer. Verse 14, in, him, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, he brings us out of the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, supreme in eternity. We saw that, did we not, as we thought about John chapter 1, perfectly, absolutely, accurately the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the highest honor, and therefore belongs to him. He's supreme in eternity. He's number one. How can you add to him? How can you not be satisfied with him? Supreme in creation, verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He maintains that delicate balance necessary for the existence of life in the universe. He literally holds all things together. He's the energy behind the universe. And only he can fix the mess of our time. What do we see around us? Broken people, broken dreams, broken relationships, broken hearts, broken minds, broken bodies. He's the fixer because he's the creator and the sustainer. We don't need anyone else. Why would we look for anything else? Supreme in creation. Supreme in the church, the beginning of verse 18. And he's the head of the body, the church. He owns the church. This is his church. It's not my church or your church. It's his church. He energizes and coordinates the body. He creates and he keeps the church. So that in everything, verse 18, he might have the supremacy not just a prominent place, but the supreme place. That's why he must be the center of our focus. Every time we meet, every time we worship, every time we think, he is the supreme one. We don't look for something more or something else because it all begins with him, it continues in him, it ends with him. He's supreme in reconciliation, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The sole and sufficient Savior of his people. That's who he is. By his blood, he, he reconciles. He, the cost is great. The cost actually was his shed blood on the cross. And the cross, therefore is the ultimate evidence that there is no length the love of God will refuse to go in effecting reconciliation. There's no limits. He will allow, he will send his son to die. Jesus is the sole and effective savior of his people. Nobody else, nothing else. And that brings us to verse 21 to 23, where we're going to spend 
most of the rest of our time this evening. Because in these three verses, we have the simple truth of the gospel, these essential foundations of what it means to go from being unsaved through the salvation process to becoming saved, and what that means. What Paul does is he describes our natural state in our sin, verse 21, that's before faith in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 22, he describes God's rescue plan that's resulting in our faith in Jesus Christ. And then verse 23, the nature of true faith, living out our faith in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's before, during, and after salvation. Do you know what? We need to understand this. We need to understand this. And the whole world needs to understand this. That's why we focus on this this evening. So let's first of all think of what we were like before faith in Christ. Verse 21, let's read it again. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. <coughs> We've got extremely unflattering phrases here in verse 21. Did you notice them? Alienated from God, enemies in your minds, your evil behavior. Mm, not terribly nice. Similar to the ideas that we see in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. It describes what we mean by total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean that we are as bad or as evil as we could be, but it does mean that every part of us has been affected by sin. That's what total depravity means. We were created to have fellowship with God, but because of our sin, we've become God's enemies, alienated from God, enemies in our minds, and we just give ourselves to evil behavior. That's mankind without Christ, mankind without salvation. Simply put, as we don't want God. Now, I don't think there's many people in church, in fact, I would dare say that there's nobody in church tonight will, would, um, would say, I don't want God. In fact, I would guess that there's nobody in church this evening would say uh, or think, I don't want God. But often the way we live our lives is that we want to control Him. We want to sit on the throne of our hearts. We want to rule our own lives. We want to be king. We want to be in control. And, and when we do that, basically what we're saying is, we don't want you, God, to be God. Because I want to be God of my life. And that leads us to all kinds of false beliefs about, oh, that religion's the answer, church is the answer, anything is the answer, but God. That's faith before we come to, that's what before, before faith in Christ actually looks like. It's, it's total depravity. And, and we might think we're moral, we might think we're nice, we might think we're good, but actually, we're not. We are alienated from God, enemies in our minds, 
the cause of our evil behavior. And the longer we live like this, our conscience becomes numb and we slip and we slide further into rebellion. It's life without Christ. That's what verse 21 is all about. So what do we do with this this sin, this alienation, this this evil behavior? Well, here's four things we, we can do. It's common. First of all, we deny our sin. I didn't do anything wrong. That's what we say. Or, or we may go further. This is not wrong. Not my opinion. Not an opinion of the world. And so we, we simply deny sin exists. Or we excuse it. We say, everybody's doing it. This is common. You know, this is the new normal. Get with it, church. Holiness is Victorian. Holiness is yesterday. Everyone is doing it. Isn't that what young folks, that's what you hear? Maybe that's what you say? Everyone is doing it. That's a very dangerous thing to think or to say. Or we justify our sin. I deserve to be happy. I need this. I want this. And so as Isaiah 5 would say, we make evil good and we make good evil. Isn't it remarkable that in some of us who are old enough, we've been around the block a wee while, can see how things 30 years ago used to be clearly evil and sinful and wrong, now are accepted, and, and the things that, um, that were, were good 30 years ago are now evil and unacceptable. We've just turned things on its head. Or we rename our sin. In fact, the word sin becomes redundant. So adultery becomes an affair or a fling. Lying becomes exaggeration. Or greed becomes enjoying good things. Or criticism becomes speaking my mind. The list goes on. We simply rename our sin. But the Bible tells us the truth. When we live like this, we're alienated from God we're enemies in our minds, we're, we're in our evil behavior. And, and so the court of public opinion is set, um, sets the, the moral standards of today. We see it in the soap operas, we see it uh, in social media, we see it in the political decision makers. And that explains why our society is sinking deeper and deeper into sin, even though it doesn't recognize it as sin, we do. There's little fear of God, and God's standards are increasingly rejected. Now, this is the bad news. The good news is coming, okay? So, stick with it. But this is the bad news, or this actually, I suppose, is reality. This is reality. What we need to know and what others need to know. But secondly, faith in Christ, what does that look like? Well, just simply look at that verse 22. But now, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is God's rescue plan. I think it was um, Alistair Begg used to talk about Humpty Dumpty. I'm sure we know the nursery rhyme, yeah? Shall we say it together? He sat on the wall, didn't he? He had a great... Good, yeah, you're with me. 
all the kings and all the kings couldn't put together again. And Beg made a big thing of this. I mean, I haven't listened to him for, for a wee while, but he made a lot about this. This is a parable, actually, of our generation. We're broken, we're fallen, we're in pieces, we're in a mess. And even, even some thoughtful unsaved people, some philosophers in the world are beginning to ask the question, where, where is the glue to reassemble the disintegration and disarray of this generation? Where's the answer going to be? Where is the answer? They ask the question, and they either don't want our answer in Jesus or they hear it, but they want another answer. Society is quick to blame everything else. In fact, if I'm quoting Alistair Big Wright, he, he says there was a graffiti once that Humpty Dumpty was pushed. And that's typical, again, of what the world says. There's always somebody else to blame. This is, this is Genesis 3, isn't it? So what do we blame? We blame the education system. We blame politicians. We blame religion, would you believe it? Who or what will put us back together again? It's Jesus. It's the only answer. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to, rep- to present you holy in the sight without blemish and free from accusation. He has reconciled you. This is the good news. Yes, we were alienated. Now we're reconciled. Once we were enemies, now we are friends. Paul says, he, Jesus, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. See, the cost to God of reconciling you was paid by Jesus from alienation to adoption because God cannot and will not say, oh, it's okay, it's all right, it doesn't matter, you can, you can be alienated from me, you can be enemies of, in your mind with me, you can have all your evil behavior. It really doesn't matter because in the end, I'm going to take you home to heaven anyway. No, because God makes the moral rules and sin has to be paid for And Jesus paid the price. And God longs to forgive. This is the good news. The bad news is we're alienated from God. We're enemies in our minds. We've got our evil behavior. But God longs to forgive and make new. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's what he wants to do for you. This is his purpose, to reconcile us and to change us as we grow in his image. Holy in his sight, you'll notice here in verse 22. So salvation is not a ticket to get us out of hell. Isn't isn't that the sad reality of a lot of evangelical preaching over the years? It's just a ticket to get you to heaven and to get you out of hell. Ah, it is that, but it's a lot, lot more than that. It's about making us holy 
in his sight. Now and then forevermore. To be holy means to be uniquely his, given unto him, given for his service, totally God's. That's the gospel. That's what faith in Christ means. Without blemish, you can see there as well. Jesus wants to totally transform us, to purge sin from our lives. And yes, in heaven, that's going to be total, but in the meantime, he begins this work. Because it's, it's the church filled with people without blemish that will be attractive in the presentation of the gospel. And free from accusation, there's absolutely nothing that anyone could accuse us of. No one and nothing. This is what you get when you're reconciled by Christ's death. This is what you get. Holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. And one day, do you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to present his people before God as holy, blameless, and free from accusation. Could it get any better than that? <laughs> if you can think of something better than that, who is greater than anything they might try with their perverted message. Remember, it is damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. The third thing, and the last thing, <coughs> is living out our faith in Jesus. So, we've gone from where we were before, uh, faith in Christ, to the process of being saved and what that means. What does it look like going forward? Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a servant. So, how do I know that I have been moved from being without Christ and without faith in Christ to being in Christ? Is there any evidence that I should see in my life? Is there anything that should be in the way I live my life? Yes, there, there are, he says. He says there's basically three things there. Continue in your faith. Be established and firm. And don't be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. There's three proofs. There are many others, but here's the three that he highlights in this particular passage. Faithfulness, perseverance, hallmarks of the true child of God. In other words, you keep going, and you never give up. Now, the gospel doesn't work like magic. It doesn't. It involves our mind, our hearts, and our wills, and the, all three must be involved. And we must strive towards the hope of the gospel. We do not turn away to any other hope. And so we might say, there's nothing beyond him. There's no one beyond him. We stay with Jesus, and we rely on Jesus, and we 
stick right through to the end with Jesus. No matter what happening around us, no matter what, what happens to us, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So seen in this, this idea of continuing your faith. Notice we, we be stable in the gospel. We don't stop. We don't give up. We don't take a rest. We don't add on to the gospel. Be established and firm. We, we remain loyal to the faith. We don't waver from the gospel. We're solid and firm and safe. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. We don't shift. We don't be attracted away. Now, I know he's saying the one thing in three different ways, but basically he's saying we persevere by continuing in our faith, being established and firm, not moving from the hope that is in Jesus. If you have, it is as damning, sorry, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. And when Jesus has gripped our hearts and minds, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what happens around us. We will persevere. The saints of history have shown us that. The saints in Scripture have shown us that. The saints in the persecuted church show us that. See, if you're doing this, if you're continuing your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, then you can be sure you're in Christ and not without Christ. It's proof of what he's actually done. It's proof that you've been reconciled. If he has rescued you, if he has saved you, there will be proof. And here it is. And here's the hard question. Can you see this proof in your own life? This continuing, this establishment, firmness, this not moved from the hope. And then at the end of verse 23, this, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven under which I, Paul, have become a servant. See, they and you have heard of this hope in the gospel. All over the world, this hope has been is being, will be proclaimed. Paul himself is the minister of this hope. Hope. Isn't that one of the beautiful words of Christmas? Hope. Maybe tonight you're feeling hopeless. 
broken by a broken world. You're tired and you're weary and you're distracted and it's hard. And you long for hope. Then look to the real Jesus. That's the only answer. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And so we have moved from without Christ to being in Christ to proof of being in Christ in these three verses. <coughs> Mark Ashton, um, he's, he's a, somebody I, I read and listen to of occasions, and he said, I want you to imagine, he said, coming before God on that final day and you saying to God, I'm sorry for all the sins that I've committed. Do you know what God's answer will be? What sin? That's the difference. That's the difference from being in Christ and not being in Christ. Our sin is forgiven and wiped away. It's incredible, isn't it? The difference being in Christ makes. I say to you folks tonight, you have got to know this personally. And your friends and your neighbors and your family members, the people you know and love, they've got to know it too. So I ask again, do you know this? Do you really know this? I think it's very dangerous for us living in Northern Ireland to rely on some decision made some years ago. I, I think we've got to be very careful that we don't rely upon a wee prayer that we made some years ago. We've got to be careful we don't rely upon some childhood commitment that has never grown any further. We don't rely upon church membership or church attendance or the sacraments. As important as many of these things or all these things can be, very significant. It's the gospel, isn't it, that makes a difference. It's the gospel that saves. Because, you see, without the gospel, without Christ, we are alienated from God. We're enemies in our minds. Our lives are filled with evil behavior. That's the reality. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight with a blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel we're born without Christ in the gospel we become in Christ 
and then we show the proof by living for Christ. It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. Again, I say I doubt whether many of us here tonight will say that there's no such person as Jesus. But my hope and prayer is this, that we're not believing in the wrong Jesus. We're not believing in the wrong Jesus. That's why John's gospel is going to be so good. Wasn't it so good to sit under the ministry this morning? To see this light and love and grace of God presented to us in Jesus. And there's more to come in the rest of the gospel. It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. Let's go from this place believing in the real Jesus. Let me pray. Again, if you have any desire to talk about these things, we're here for as long as it takes. Lord, thank you for the real Jesus, beautiful, powerful, and thoroughly encouraging, a Savior, a King, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you will grip our hearts and minds this evening hour and throughout this Christmas period and beyond so that we might be indeed reconciled and that we might continue in our faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. We bring our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.